Last week we uh, covered 1 Samuel chapter 4, and uh, we talked about how God cannot be used and how he will not have his glory robbed by anyone else. And this morning, Lord willing, we will continue in the story of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles turn, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, and the first two verses in chapter 7. So buckle up. We're going to move here this morning, and we're going to primarily talk about this idea is, is God functional for you? Is God functional for you? But we're going to read the passage, but I want to pray first, and we'll read the, the passage this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to gather together as the body of Christ. And we ask that you would teach us this morning as we come before your word, that we would come with open minds and hearts, receptive to what you have for us. And uh, Father, we ask that you would be glorified in all this, that we would um, come in contact with who you are and, and and what you're doing in our lives, and that we would uh, look to, to grow and to change in our time, um, these, these remaining moments as we, as we spend in your word. May you be glorified in all this. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 5, follow with me as I read, starting in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must now remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around. They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who, who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6. Verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us great, this great harm." 
But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord in the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bashemish along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people at Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bashemus offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Akron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Akron and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they sat down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bashemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bashemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great, great blow. Then the men of Bashemus said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now in chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Anibadab and on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It's a long story here. There's a lot in this. And so, um, really, I'm just going to follow through in the, in the two chapters here of the three major events. And so, just follow with me as I go. It's a simple outline. But the first is, the Philistines and the Ark of God. And so we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 5. If you remember we, that Israel had, had fallen into a state of terrible decay. Socially, spiritually, mor morally, the, the spiritual leaders were evil. And not only that, but the people themselves didn't seem to mind. Nobody demanded that the clergy be reformed. They went along with it. And when a congregation doesn't rise up, and demand that a corrupt clergy reform, it means that the congregation themselves are corrupt. It most likely means that they're happy to have a clergy that will make them feel bad about their sinful lives. Their, their ears are tickled, as it says in the New Testament. So as we enter chapter 5, we're on the, the heels of what transpired in chapter 4, the tragic end of the line of Eli. He and his two sons die in the same day, as prophesied by God earlier in the book. And while the people of God mourned the losses, of not only their, their priests, but the 34,000 men that die in the battlefield, the ark is taken, captured by the Philistines. And we begin chapter 5 by seeing what happens on the other side of the story. As the Philistines bring the ark from the field of victory to their chief city, Ashdod. The Philistines, as we read, has, have these five big cities listed. So they get home, they, they bring the spoils from their battle. The, the ark of God is set up to their God, Dagon. What was the ark? Well, let me review again. The, the word ark translates, translates a Hebrew word for chest. It is a wooden box covered with gold. It was about roughly four feet long and two and a, two and a half feet high and wide. Not that big. And... On the top, there was a piece of pure gold called the mercy seat. And there were two golden angels facing one another and their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the place of worship. It was not just in the holy place, but it was in the, the back 
part of the holy place, the holy of holies. It was the only piece of furniture in there. And over the ark appeared the Shekinah, the the kabod, the, the glory of God. And no one could go back there except the high priest once a year. No one could touch the ark. They couldn't go back there, even look at it, except on very unusual occasions. So here, the ark in chapter 5 is captured by the Philistines, and what do they do? They set it up next to their god. Dagon, what kind of god was he? Well, he was a corn god. God of the corn harvest, which teaches us that you can literally make a god of anything. This is one of their main gods because corn was one of their greatest crops. The farmers came and offered sacrifices and on and on. And so when the Philistines took the ark, they naturally set up to their God. And they're, they're giving witness to the truth of their worldview. And their worldview is paganism. You may ask, what is paganism? Well, pagans took elements of the universe and worshipped them. What were the elements of the universe? Well, basic things like work and harvest and, and beauty and athletics and partying and sun and the moon. You get the picture. Every basic element, every basic thing. And so you choose what you want to worship. The athlete would choose the athlete god so that he can become a better athlete. The farmer would worship the harvest god so that they would get what they needed in the harvest. So in that worldview, the the real question is not which god is true. Who cares if they're true? They want to know which god is most functional for them. Which God will help me? You know, they didn't sit around asking, which one's true? Which one's real? When they captured the ark, they didn't ask if Yahweh was real. They knew he was real. They just wanted to know if if Yahweh might be a functional God for them. What can I get from him? Will, Will Yahweh be as helpful as this other God? And so the question of, Paganism is not what is right, what is true, but what works. So paganism, as you see, is incredibly pragmatic. They set up the ark next to Dagon, and what happens? Well, the the first night, we, we find out that he falls downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So the scripture says they took Dagon and put him back in his place. I can't help but laugh when I read this. They come in and find their God on the floor, laying prostrate before the ark of the Lord. And what do they do? They pick him up, put him back in his place. You know, it's probably some old man coming in and seeing this and, and saying, Daggone, kids. Did you get that? Where's the youth pastor? These Philistine teenagers are causing a mess. And they set it back up. I think it's funny. You put your God back up. It's sad, too. So they do this. They they come back the next morning. Uh Uh-oh. It says in verse 4, And they rose. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head and his hands were lying cut off. So they come back, and it's not only just fallen, it's more severe now. The head and hands are cut off, and they don't have any glue to put them back together. What do we do? Now, the priests knew what this meant. The head is the place of wisdom, and the hands were a sign of power. And what's being communicated here is that their God is incredibly foolish and incredibly powerless, He's useless. Dagon is getting the godness kicked out of him. Yahweh doesn't need someone to come and set him up. God is not a good luck charm. He doesn't need your support. He's not a politician looking for your vote. He could fight his own battles all by himself. He doesn't need you to carry him. Instead, the scriptures teach us that he will carry you. He's not a helpless God like the others. And frankly, we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that God needs us. He doesn't. But the scriptures tell us that he chooses us. And he chooses to use us. That should astound us. 
But make no mistake, he doesn't need us. He, he doesn't need anything. We are for him, not the other way around. So we come to verse six, and the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and they terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The hand of the Lord, the powerful hand of God was heavy. Do you remember that word? Heavy, kabod, glory. The weight of God's glory weighed down on them. You know, they might have thought that it was vandalism, but they soon realized that it's much more terrible than that. Now a plague hits the city. I also found it humorous in verse 6, the tumors in verse 6 actually translated different in the King James Version. Anyone have the King James Version? King James Version says this, but the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them in Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with hemorrhoids. God gave them hemorrhoids. Parents, I'll let you explain that to your kids over lunch. You're welcome. Horrible plague spreads, and the city's in a panic. So what do they do? They decide in verse 8 to send the ark to the city of Gath, but it continues. The plague spreads. And another humorous part, if there's any humor in the story, the, the warlords convene again and decide to send it to Ekron. And when it arrives there, we read this, there's a crowd that meets them at the gate, and they say, they have brought us the ark of God, of Israel, to kill us. They've heard about this. They see this as a threat. And they have a riot. They don't want it near them. So they gather the, the warlords again and plead for them to return the ark. And all through it, God's hand was heavy there, killing and afflicting the Philistines. One thing we learn, at least I did throughout this chapter, is the dangers of idolatry. The Philistines worshiped their God. They were worshipers at the core. And if you look closely, you can see the, the hints of idolatry in the life of the Philistines in this chapter. There's idols of power and idols of respect and idols of usefulness and politics even and safety and wisdom and control. Their, their idol wasn't just a physical thing like the statue. No, their idols arise in their hearts. As John Kelvin has said, that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. What's an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. This is a definition that is given in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. I would encourage you to, if you haven't read this yet, this is an incredible read, a good, helpful read. And and I want to walk through two different idols that I, that I see in the text here. And, and Keller mentions this in his book. The first one is the political idolatry. You can subtly see it in the passage uh, that the hope that they place in the leaders of the Philistines. Looking for them to bring them hope in the midst of pain. And they, they gather these lords time and again hoping that they can bring resolution to what's going on. That their, their hope is placed in, in their leaders here. In fact, there's outright panic by the people and they look to their political leaders to do something about it. You need to fix this. Keller writes in his book, this may be the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They, they have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on the points of disagreement. Another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken or wrong, but to be evil. And mind you, Keller's book was written in 2009, after a prior election. He's writing to the church. His point, don't place your trust in a political system that won't be able to save you. Donald Trump will not save you. Jesus trumps the president. Only God can save. Second thing is the idolatry of power. 
It's littered throughout the story. The Philistines loved their power. They thought they won the battle with the, the Israelites because they were stronger, that their, 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 their warriors were able to overpower them. But that's not why they won. We read the chapter, they won because God allowed them to win. And they take their spoils and place it next to their other God as a showcase of their power to destroy the people of Yahweh. And when they're stricken with tumors and rats coming in, they look to remove this. And all humans struggle with a sense of being dependent and powerless. Rather than accepting our, our inability and our dependence, we look for ways to assure ourselves that we still have power over our own lives. But friends, it's an illusion. And this leads to an idolatry of control, an idolatry of making plans, and we need safety. Another author argued this. He said, man is insecure, and he seeks to overcome his insecurity by a will to power. He pretends that he's not limited. But honestly, human beings have very little power over their lives. Most of what sets the course of your life is outside of your control. Have you ever thought about that? You had no control over what century you would be born. You had no control over what country you would be born into. Or what family you were born into. You had no control over what you would look like. Or how your voice would sound. Or what color your natural hair color is. <laughs> or if you could grow a beard or not. Or if you could sing a tune or not. You have no control over that. All of this has been given to you by God. We are not infinite creators. No, we are the desperate creation. And, and humans, we have a, a deep fear of powerlessness. And that comes from our alienation from God. Our culture tells young people that they can be anything you want to be to just set your mind to it. And I don't know what that means. Is it even biblical? You know, it's an attempt to put the power in the hands of men instead of recognizing that it all belongs to God. I mean, wouldn't it be more helpful to teach our youth to strive after God, pursue him more than anything else in your life, and you are what you are because God made you this way and praised him for it? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if you, as if you did not receive it? And what we are is what we are because of the grace of God and what he's given us. We should only boast in him. Well, there's more to say, I know, because I deleted a lot from my sermon, but we're going to move on. There's more story here. I want to encourage you to get that book by Keller. It's the Counterfeit Gods. If It's a short book. You can see it here. The epilogue itself is worth the price as, as he walks through the process of finding and then replacing your idols. So I encourage you that. If you want the title later, you can see me. But there's more to the story. We're going to go to the next point here. The Philistines getting rid of the ark. Now we're in chapter 6. After the ark is in the country for seven months, the author says, they've had enough and people are sick, people are dying. They want it gone. So the, the warlords assemble again and devise a plan. They're going to put the ark on top of a cart led by two milk cows who have calves in the next town and they want to see what happens. You know, they, they say this might be a coincidence what's happened here. It, it might not be the Yahweh at all. It's just bad luck for us. So let's see what happens. If, if those cows go back to their calves, then we know it really wasn't Yahweh. So they de devise this plan. They also want to appease this God. They send a, a guilt offering along with it. They decide in chapter 6, verse 4, that what is the guilt offering? They said five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Confusion there. How, how, do you, how do you repay a debt you cannot assess to a God that you don't know? This is the best they can do. It's a strange thing, to say the least. 
Remember, if the tumors were most likely hemorrhoids, would you like to be the model for that type of golden item? We won't go there. So they make the images of the tumors and images of the mice, and they, they put it together. And in this passage there in verse 5, it says that we give glory to the God of Israel. The call to give glory to God is something that was missing this story this far. And you would think that it would have been coming from God's people, but it doesn't. It comes from the Philistines. If you remember this in Exodus 14.4 about the Egyptians, he says, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all the hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I think if, if we give glory, give weight to God, then he will lighten his hand off their gods and their land. And from this, we can infer that it wasn't just the God of Dagon that suffered, that it was probably other gods that suffered. And so they load the ark and the box of the offering and set, set the cows down the road. And you should know that a cow would naturally go back to their suckling calves. This most definitely should have happened, but it doesn't. Verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They neither turned to the right nor left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border. They, they lowed along the way, suggests that they were being driven against their natural inclinations by a power beyond them. And I wonder who may that be? Who, who is that? And the warlords are coming behind to, to spy it out. Did it make it? What happened? You got to think they're probably just relieved that it's gone. So this moves quickly to the third point. Israel now back with the ark. So verse 13, the ark comes strolling into town as they're working in the fields and they look up and they see it. And what do they do? They rejoice. They take it in. They, 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 they split up the cart. They kill and offer the cows. And they see the box next to it with the guild offerings. But I can imagine the people as they see it come in and they, know, they recognize now it's the ark. They, they're, they're happy. Hey, look, it's the ark. It's here. Man, I've always wanted to see the ark up close. You know, my mother's uncle told me when I was young that it's incredible. I got to look at it. I want to open it up and I want to see. And in verse 19, and he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. We need to deal with verse 19 because there's a lot of people who look at this verse and maybe have a little background in church or their relationship is, is not much with God, and they reply, this is why I don't trust the Bible or I cannot believe in a God like that because this seems so primitive. Have we not moved beyond this? They die because of that? People struggle. So the question comes, why did 70 men die? What does it mean? You know, the usual response you get is that they broke the rules. There are three in particular that I see in this episode. Three rules that they break. First, they, they sacrifice the cows. Leviticus 1.3 says that they should have been a bull. Number two, they, they parade around the ark, but they should have covered it as Numbers 4.5 instructs them. And the third one, the, the big one that we notice is they look inside the ark. There's some debate whether they actually open the ark or just see it. It doesn't matter. It should have been covered. So these rules were disregarded. And, and, and many then think that's why they died. Yes, they broke those rules, but I don't believe that is why they died. I don't want to lose you here, so keep following with me. If you just end up with the idea that the rules were broken, then you end up having a taskmaster and not a god. The cause of the 70 men who died was not that they broke the rules. The occasion was that they broke the rules. The symptom was that they broke the rules, but it was not the cause. You know, there's another story that's very similar 
in nature to what happens here in this story. And it's in 2 Samuel with David and the ark. As they bring it out, again, 20 years later. It was David and his men carting the ark out. No poles. They carry it, put it on a cart and wheel it out. And it hits a bump and it begins to fall. You, you guys know the story in 2 Samuel? And, and Uzzah, Uzzah, reaches out to save it. What happens to him? He dies. Right there. Struck dead in front of everyone. They too broke a bunch of rules. They don't carry it as it was instructed. They don't have the priest even doing this. And he even reaches out and touches it. But the question that I have is, why was it just Uzzah that died? And you may say, well, he was the one who touched it. But if it wasn't brought out on the poles, then the other guys touched it too. So there's blame to go around. So why was it just Uzzah? I mean, David was in charge even. Why wasn't he struck dead? You know, I believe the rules teach us something here. And there are a lot of rules and regulations around the Ark of the Covenant, and they inform us about who God is. It's an interesting thing to compare the Ark of the Covenant to, the, to that of the, the, the God of Dagon that we see here. You know, I'm sure, and they did, they, they could touch Dagon. They, they probably kissed it and rubbed it and held it and probably prayed to it. And the power of this deity is appeased. It's, it's flattered that if you reach out to it, it'll, it'll bless you as they think. But not the ark. It was to be treated the exact opposite way. Remember, the ark was placed where? In the back. It's where the power always is, right? In the movies, right? You go into the saloon, where's the power? It's in the back. In the holy of holies. There was a barrier between you and the ark was an altar where they made sacrifices. The only person who could actually see and be in the presence of the ark was the high priest. And this happened once a year at Yom Kippur where they would bring a blood sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And what is this teaching us about our God? You know, in other religions, you can reach out with your devotion, with your morality, with, with your power and, and get something from that deity. But a God, our God is teaching us that there has... It's so much different here. There is a gulf between you and God. And you cannot cross it with your devotion. You can't cross that gulf with your morality. You can't cross it by God just waving his hand saying, oh, that's old news, don't worry about it. No, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be an atonement. There is a debt and some payment is required. There must be blood. There must be suffering. There must be death. There is a gulf and you can't cross it to, to get there by your sheer will. There has to be sacrifice. These men broke the rule. But why did they break the rules? It's because they rejected the essence of biblical faith, which is the gospel. And the gospel is you cannot just go to God with your good works or your good intentions. There is a gulf that can only be crossed by an incredible provision. And these men didn't understand this. Furthermore, they didn't believe that there was this gulf between them and God. They didn't understand God. They understood other religions, but not the God of the Bible. You know, they, they think, of course I can grab the ark. I, of course I can look inside. I'm a good person. I believe in Yahweh. I'm one of his people. They don't believe that there's a gulf between them and God. They didn't understand that there's a, a great gap that can only be bridged by some kind of radical grace of, and sacrifice and atonement. And friends, this attitude toward God is lethal. People may ask, why did they die? God was again trying to show his people the way they approach God. The way they think of this gulf is lethal. 
It's dangerous for them. They thought that they could manage God. They, they, they still thought that they could use God for what they wanted. They, they didn't want to submit themselves to God because they didn't see themselves on the other side of this huge gulf. They didn't understand their badness. They were good people. They were moral people. They were religious people. And what happens then, if you believe your religion, your right beliefs, your morality, your right behavior is the key, then you believe that you have God in your hand. He's in your pocket. That God owes you now. That you, in a sense, can now manage God. That you deserve all the good things. That God is now on your side. And friends, this is lethal. And anyone that believes this way is living dangerously because you don't understand your need for radical grace. This incredible gulf that can only be crossed by radical grace. You cannot cross this gulf on your own goodness. You cannot manage God. And this is what the people are trying to do here. They're trying to control God. The people respond in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The first thing you need to do is you need to understand that you cannot cross this, this gulf, this chasm between you and God. You see, in all of this, the ark is like the gospel. It tells us that no one is righteous. No one. No one can satisfy God for their sins. Romans says no one is righteous. No, not one. The ark kills pagans. The ark kills good people. The ark kills the religious people, the pure people. And the people say, who is able to stand before the Lord? Who? If, if good people can't stand, if, if religious people can't stand, if, if moral people can't stand, then who? Who can stand? And the answer is no one. No one can stand before the Lord all in themselves. There is a gulf between them and God. And this is the bad news, friends. And you need to understand, if you haven't already, the bad news of the gospel, that you are more wicked than you could ever dare to believe. But God wants you to understand the good news of the gospel, too, that you're more loved than you could ever understand and imagine by a God who gave his all for you, who gives the perfect provision so that this gulf could be crossed. You see, God, God made the ark to show them that there's this huge chasm between them and God. But he also made the ark to show them that there is a provision. And what is the provision? But blood and death and suffering. And maybe you say, why did God make it like that? If God wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just forgive us? The ark doesn't just explain to us that there's a gulf, there's a, there's a span, so it explains to us that there's forgiveness. It teaches forgiveness. You may say, why would forgiveness always require suffering and blood and death? And I ask, have you ever been hurt deeply? Really hurt. What happens when you're hurt badly? You know that you can't just shrug it off. There's a, a debt there's pain that has been inflicted and it cannot just be forgotten. And you are made, every single one of us is made with the sense of justice. It's right inside of every one of us. And when injustice happens, there are two things that will happen. You will either make the person pay for what they've done, revenge, or you will forgive. Only two options. And maybe you say, that's not what I do. I just forget and I move on. And I say, liar. You're not built that way. You can't do that. You stew. You think over and over about that wrong. You don't forget. You remember. 
So the only two options is, is you either get payback, either through inflicting pain to them, or you forgive. And if you've ever forgiven someone who's inflicted great harm to you, you know how difficult that is. You can either hurt them with your words, your actions, and they suffer, or you forgive and you suffer because it's hard. And on the cross, we see this in action. He's suffering for the sins of his people. He dies for our sins. He died for us because there's this incredible gulf between us and God, and there has to be forgiveness. It cannot just be let go. There has to be blood. There has to be suffering. And Christ did that on our behalf. He absorbs the pain on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen? It's forever. This is amazing. The gulf is now gone. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only through his shed blood for us on the cross that we can have this eternal redemption. Does this bring you joy? Just a few of you. I pray it does. Charles Spurgeon, near the end of his life, said this. Some of us know what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that We have almost had to ask for a stay of this delight because we could not endure it anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a bit, we might have died. And the gulf between us and God is now gone. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, the story ends here in chapter 7, the first two verses. The men of Kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Anibadab and on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged there, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The ark is now secure with his people, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Samuel leading his people in a national repentance. We'll learn about repentance next week. So as I end, let me ask this question. Is God just functional to you? Remember that God knocked down Dagon twice in the story. If, if he had just knocked him down once, you could have said, look, God is superior, a better God, a tougher God, but he does it twice. And the second time, he doesn't just knock him down. He cuts off his head and hands. And in that, God is saying, I am the only God. I am the true God. So to my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, don't come to Christianity because it's exciting, although I believe it is. Don't come because you think it will heal you, although I have seen that it does. Don't come because you think it's relevant, even though I think it definitely is. You shouldn't come because there's power in it, even though we see that there is. You come to Christianity because it's true. We're not like the pagans that don't follow Christ because he's functional. We follow him because he's true. If you come to Christianity because you think that it's functional, I want you to know that there are times in life where it doesn't seem like it is. It doesn't seem very practical even. There are times where there won't be any healing. just wounding and hurt. There'll be times where it doesn't seem relevant, but as you live in this world, it seems 
even the opposite, very irrelevant. There'll be times where it'll seem like there's no power. Because God is silent. And friends, there will be those times And what keeps you a Christian in those hard times isn't because God is relevant or quick to heal or even full of answers at a moment's notice. What keeps you a Christian is that it's true. It's true. And if it's true, you will experience those things. And if Christianity isn't true, then you won't, those experiences won't help you at all. You come to belief not because of feeling. You come because of truth. And God is not a tame God. God is not a God that we box in or someone that we can place on a shelf with other things of life. God is much bigger than that. He is the only true God. The other hazard that I think of here is functionality for our church. In the short 15 years that I've been in ministry, I've seen this in churches where I've served. I've talked to others who are experiencing this. In fact, I had a conversation about it, this very thing last week or this week. So it's a concern for Edgewood Bible Church. If you've been in a church for any length of time, you realize that churches begin to do certain things and they begin to work. And the natural, most appropriate decision is to keep doing it. And it very well may be a biblical thing and a good thing, but churches don't always do it for those reasons. No, they keep doing it because it works. And we subtly turn a good thing into a useful thing. Churches fall into this. So the golden age, whether it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, things that were helpful or useful. They had a particular ministry, a particular way of doing things, and they had results because of it. And so churches think this way. You know, I've, I've heard this before. People say, I, I met Christ this way, it was really amazing. God used fill in the blank, and so we need to keep doing that. They insist that the church keeps on doing it. And what happened is that God att attached himself for your benefit. In other words, God came down in a bush, and your life was never the same. Can you imagine Moses going around after that experience that he had with God at the bush and saying to people, you have to worship at the bush. What are you doing? Where's the bush? I got to go get the bush. We need the bush. That's what the people do in this chapter, in this section. They say, where's the ark? The ark worked. We crossed the river. The water stopped. We carried around Jericho and the walls fell down. Where's the ark? And all of it, they put their trust in a box. They forget God. They wanted functionality. You know what happens, right? One day with the box, thousands of men die, utterly beaten, and the ark seems powerless. And the next day, no soldiers are there, and the ark is completely powerful. What this means for our church is that we need to do our best to do what's right. We should have a great care group ministry. We should have a very organized Awana program. We should have well done music with people that are gifted and love and desire to play. We should do these things. But it's not the care groups. It's not the organized Awana. And it's not the gift of musicians. It's always God. He can work with anything and we need to remember that. So I don't want us to be a church that attaches ourselves to things that God uses. I want to be a church that attaches ourselves to God. And he can use anything. I pray that he uses us. And God is where the power is. 
And that's where the joy comes from. It's, it's him. It's always been him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you again for the challenge of your word. For the reminder again that we worship not things or, or functions or we don't even worship the benefits you give us. We worship you. Remind us again, God. Help us. We're going to forget, God. You know that. We're going to get distracted. I pray that we would remind ourselves quickly. We would remind one another that our focus and our hearts should be centered not on the things that you do and the things that you give, but on you and you alone. Father, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that they have been here, have attended here, or this is even their first time, and, and they don't have any relationship with you. And right now, they stand on the other side of this incredible gulf, this huge chasm between them and God. I pray that they would understand the only way to span that, to, to, to see and understand you is through Christ, through his work on the cross, for the blood he shed on their behalf, on our behalf, that we could have a relationship with you that we could know you and serve you and love you. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.